0: Let me catch you up a little bit if you weren't here the last few weeks. We are in a sermon series on Mark. And every Lent, it is our practice as a church to choose one of the four Gospels to go over as a church. We usually put together a reading plan. We'd love for y'all to read along with us. And then here in the sermon series, we go a little bit more in depth in certain passages. And that's what we've been doing. You've only missed one week. Last week, Stephen did an overview of kind of the history and context of Mark. And I'm going to catch you up a little bit as we start to dive into the story that Stephen talked about. So Mark is a really interesting gospel. Each one is distinct, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their own way. But Mark is interesting in in a couple ways. One, it's the earliest account of Jesus' life that we have. We assume it was written in the 60s or 70s, C.E. or A.D., so that means it's only a generation or two away from Jesus. We assume it's written by a guy named Mark who wasn't a firsthand account of Jesus. In other words, he himself wasn't an apostle, but most likely he learned from an apostle. And those are the words that he's writing down. Now, there is a certain historical context around Mark that's important to understand, and that's why Stephen took the whole time, last time, talking about that context. You see, the 60s and 70s A.D. was a really complicated and trying time for Christians. Stephen talked about the Emperor Nero, who was the emperor of Rome during that time, and how cruel he was in persecuting specifically Christians. There were tales from that time period of martyrs who would be sacrificed because of their beliefs. It was a known reality among these groups of Christians who weren't even called Christians yet. They were just Jews practicing this new way of being. There were tales about people who would die and they knew they had to worship in secret. And all of this is going on in Rome and lesser so throughout the Roman Empire. And then there's this additional context in Jerusalem You see, in 70 CE, the second temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. The Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem. And you remember that temple, right? This was the temple that was rebuilt after the Jews had been exiled from Babylon in the 500s BC. So this temple had been standing for over 500 years in Jerusalem. And what do we remember about that temple is that the temple wasn't just a building building. For the Jews. In a lot of ways, it was the the like lived out reality of God's presence in the world. It was what connected them to being Jewish. It's what connected them to being together, to being a people. And so the sacking of that temple, to say it was catastrophic, is like a minimization of what was actually going on. This is a picture that I'm only going to put up for a hot minute because we have kids in the audience, of a 17th century depiction of what Jews felt like and Christians later felt like over that sacking of the temple in Jerusalem. You see, the whole world in the 60s and 70s was chaotic, was troubling. To be a Christian, to believe what you did, certainly meant your life was at risk and that you were in mortal peril. And it is in that context that Mark writes, which kind of explains why, if you've read the first few chapters of Mark, if you're following along with us in your reading plan, Mark doesn't mince words. Mark is on it. Do you know those three, first three chapters of Mark? Jesus is busy. He is healing people, exercising demons, healing again, teaching something, healing again over and over and over again. That's the first three chapters. Mark's Jesus is on the move. There's this sense of urgency. Jesus has to get something done. Jesus has to show people something. It's because Mark's writing is what's called in the world of biblical studies, in the world of Middle Eastern studies, apocalyptic literature. Now, that word, apocalypse, kind of freaks us out a little bit. Notoriously, since the 90s, we've associated with zombies or left-behind series or some mushroom cloud. There's been this idea, the apocalypse is the end of the world, and it's this catastrophe. And yes, this comes from a certain place. But what I mean when I say Mark is apocalyptic is I mean this very particular idea in religion and especially in Judaism. Apocalypse, in Greek, really just means revelation or disclosure. It's a telling of something. And for Jews, what that meant is that it is a revelation of God's plan to reunite heaven and earth. All Jews, and I'll say all Christians, believe that one day heaven and earth will be reunited. That that is God's plan to move us from creation to new creation. And when talking about this event, Jews would call it the apocalypse. Sometimes it was associated with one event, but often it was a series of events. And so for Jews, this was the actual definition of apocalypse. It's the revelation or the disclosure of God's plan for reunification. Over time, it changed from a series of events to one particular event. And that, that definition It's key to us understanding Mark. Because he believed that the apocalypse had already started in the form of Jesus Christ. Do y'all remember what that first line of Mark is? Stephen preached on it last week. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Do y'all remember that? That's how it starts. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. The beginning... Of the apocalypse was enacted in this person Jesus Christ and then all mark is trying to do the rest of the gospel is trying to tell you that yeah this was the beginning he is the revelation and Jesus in Mark's gospel wants you to believe it too and in a hurry that's why we get all of these healings and events in those first three chapters of Mark it's actually kind of a frenzy if you've read it, and you can read it pretty quickly. But then we get to this weird break in action around Mark 4, and that's where we're gonna be today. You see, all this hubbub has been happening, and then in Mark 4, we enter into this kind of break and this pause where Jesus starts teaching. He starts telling us some parables, some specific parables about seeds and sowing. You see, Jesus takes a break And he talks to us about the kingdom of God, the reality of when heaven and earth are united. And famously, he tells his people that it's like a mustard seed. You plant it, and it grows. And we don't know how or why it grows. We can't perceive why it's so small. We don't get it, but it grows. And when it does, its fruit is way bigger than that single seed. You see, Mark is trying to point at the fact that we don't really get how small this revelation started from a man from Nazareth who didn't look so holy to the people around him and perform miracles, but not in the way that people were expecting. And that, that is when we get to the story of the calming of the storm. And there's a temptation to read this story like a sweet, miracle story, like every children's Bible does. There's a temptation to look at the story and think, God, Jesus, gets in a boat with his disciples, they encounter some storms, and then Jesus calms the storms, and all is well. Another proof that Jesus is awesome, all is good. And it's okay to read it like that, especially when it's in other Gospels. But today, we're going to put on our apocalyptic lenses. We're going to read through this account the way Mark wants us to hear it, and hopefully it's a little bit more faithful and helps us understand a side of Jesus maybe we haven't seen before. So we're going to start. If you want to follow along, then you can pull up Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, 35 through 41, if you're really cool, you brought your scripture journal, that's not required. But if you you want to, you can, or you can pull it up on your phone. And we're going to go verse by verse, and some of this is a little different than how we normally preach. So I just want to give you that warning. So let's start with 35. Okay. On that day, when evening had come, that should be a red flag, evening. What happens in the evening? Is evening a time of really good, happy things? No, it's not. So we should be clued in, but like, oh, oh, everything that happens at night in Mark is a signal to us that something is about to happen beyond our understanding, okay? When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took with him with him in the boat just as he was, and other boats followed along. Now, what do you notice? What is a strange added phrase in here that feels different? Yes, thank you. Y'all can respond. Just as he was. That's weird, right? That Mark added that in. Why do we need that? Why do we need to be reminded that there was nothing unusual about Jesus when he entered this boat? There was nothing different about Jesus when he entered this boat. It wasn't like he was carrying a banner that said, son of God, right? He looked like a normal human. He was simple He was just a person. He was, dare I say, like a mustard seed. We can't quite figure it out, but he was just as he was. And the other boats followed along. And then gale-force winds arose and waves crashed against the boat. So the boat was filling up. I love this translation, gale-force winds, because it is accurate, right? Mark is trying to display the drama of this scene. And actually on the Sea of Galilee, this actually does happen a lot. The way the mountains are situated, the winds in the middle can create a wind tunnel. And so these winds started to arise, and it fits. The boat is getting swamped with water. One translation says swamped. It's getting full of water. But Jesus, Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. And they woke him up, And said, teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? Do you not care that we are about to die? One of that translation says, do you not care that we're about to perish? Don't you care? The world is closing in. The boat is filling up. We're obviously going to die. And you're sleeping. There's anger. There's resentment. There's confusion in that question. Don't you care that we're about to die? I didn't go for it, guys. Sorry, I got caught up in it. Y'all got it? Okay. Right? Then what does Jesus do? He got up and he gave orders to the wind and he said to the lake, silence, be still. Up until this point, and actually in English, it's really hard to hear that as the strength is what he's saying. Because up until this point, it's easy to buy in that this is a sweet miracle story but we have to use those lenses to be able to see that these words are actually much stronger than they appear in English. It isn't like silence, like be still. It actually better translates into like a muzzling, like a complete silence. And the one time that we hear this is actually we've already heard it in Mark before, and you know what it is? It's when Jesus exercises a demon out of someone. He says the same thing to the waves that he says to an unclean spirit. That should make us hear this story differently. In essence, what Jesus is doing to the wind and to the waves is nothing short but an exorcism. We're supposed to see the wind and the waves as something different than what they actually are. Because Jesus isn't actually rebuking the weather. Jesus is rebuking the evil that the weather represents. And y'all, I know. I know we don't talk about evil a lot in here. And I know we don't talk about dark powers very often in here. And that's okay. But if we want to read this faithfully, then we have to live in the reality of how Mark sees this. Jesus is not calming a storm to appease his disciples. He's telling them that there are powers in this world that are evil. There are powers in this world that they just distort. There are powers in this world that lead us to greed, ignorance, that lead us to complacency, to lead us into injustice. And we know this evil, whether we call it evil or not. The diagnosis of someone you love, the loss of all of your money in the stock market, the, the idea of what is politics and the government right now, all of it has dark powers that exist. And to all of that, Jesus is saying, be silent, be still. And they obey. Not just like kind of obey, but the sea is perfectly calm. Not a little quiver, not a little breeze that escaped. Perfectly calm. All of the powers and the evil in this world is under Jesus' thumb. And the story It should have ended there, kind of, right? The story should have been like, great, Jesus is in charge of everything. We don't have to fear any evil. All the evil is gone. It could have ended there. That could have been our miracle story. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Because strangely enough, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something in this moment. And he turns back to them, and Jesus asks them, why, Are you afraid? Don't you have faith yet? Why do you fear and do not have faith? And I gotta be honest, some of this is a little hard to hear because their fear isn't wrong. I mean, wouldn't you be scared? Isn't that the natural human response? When a boat is filling up with water, why then does Jesus act like they did something wrong? And I think the answer comes in the next and final verse. Overcome with fear, they said to each other, who is this that even the wind and the water obey? It's that question that we have to pay attention to. Even the people who lived with him, who saw him perform all those miracles in chapters 1 through 3, they still don't get it. They still ask the question, who is this? They don't know the answer for themselves. And ironically, if they did, then that could have been the basis for their faith. But they don't have it because they can't answer that question, who is this? And if we go back and we look at Mark, we actually see that that's a a common theme with the disciples in Mark. Every time they fear, it's when God has revealed a part of the plan to them. Every time. It starts with this storm. Then there's another storm where Jesus walks on water. Then there's the passion, the crucifixion. Then there's a resurrection. Then there's a transfiguration. And every single time the disciples fear, and Mark uses the same word, It's like God is saying, I'm revealing the plan to you guys. I'm showing you what you want to see, and you still don't have faith. Will you fear, or will you have faith? For the disciples in Mark's gospel, the answer is fear. And I think kind of the crushing reality is, for us... The answer is fear, too. I love this story because it's so symbolic when you read it in this apocalyptic lens. They're on a lake in between two shores, in between these two knowns, these two safe spots. And often, when we're in the middle of life's transitions, that's when we experience fear at its greatest. That's when we feel like evil is creeping in on us, whether we call it that or not. The boat shakes with the way that your partner looks at someone else. Or the boat shakes with that loss of the job that you thought you were going to get. Or the diagnosis, or your kid getting kicked out of school. Every quiver makes you fear. Every quiver makes you wonder. And you become like the disciples running back to Jesus and being like, don't you care that I am about to die? And I wish I could tell you that in this story, Jesus comes back to them and sits with them and tries to calm and comfort them. That he sits with them and holds their hand and lets them be fearful and tells them that it's okay. And I guarantee you there are other parts of the Bible that show that side of Jesus. Jesus. But Mark does not. Mark's Jesus is in a hurry. Mark's Jesus is blunt. Do you have fear or do you have faith? Those are the choices. And if you understand who I am, then you would not be fearful. And the crazy part about our lives is that Jesus doesn't come silence the storms. Following Jesus does not mean and does not guarantee that you will not have a storm-free life. Actually, following Jesus often means that you are going to experience some of your greatest pain and greatest suffering as you follow him. Pain and suffering that only Jesus can heal. But following Jesus also means that there is an opportunity, that there is potentiality, that you too might experience transformation from life to death, that old might be new, that you actually might be transformed in this life. Do you have faith or do you have fear? You cannot answer that question without first answering this one. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you understand that the person riding in the boat with you has the power to silence all evil with a word? Thank you, Jason. Do you understand who this is? And if you don't, it's okay. We're here. The people in this room are here to show you who that is. So consider this an invitation to what Lent could look like for you. To ask yourself if you know who is riding in the boat with you and what power he holds. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, you are faithful beyond measure, and yet we still fear. We still worry and we still tremble and we still don't have faith. And on good days, we have less fear, but it's never completely gone. Lord, fill us in. Fill us in where we fail, where we wobble, where we come back to you and ask if you are really there. Fill in our doubt with faith. Give us people in our life who can speak to it even when we cannot. Jesus, silence the storms in our life. But maybe more important than that, let us turn back to you amidst them. In your name we pray. Amen.